Okay, uh, we are in the kitchen of a famous restaurant, and we're watching them wash dishes. Um, the sound of dishes is everywhere with a crowd roar in the background, and uh, we just moved the microphone to a small yeah. double-decker oval table. We're hoping the sound sounds better at this point, but um, yeah. we don't know. I, I think it's actually we sounds don't pretty know. good. I've got yeah. the headphones in. All right, Jamie says it sounds better, so... Got a beard in, it's looking something fierce. Having beers with my beers and talking rap careers. Reflecting on the years, connecting on the tears. Shipwreck faith ain't always as appears. I'm bringing you fresh music, I'm bringing fresh ideas. I'm bringing you the dudes in the indie music beers. Chilling at the shows and talking about the pain with people who learned how to face it and be sane. Sipping on a brew, doing interviews. No topics off the table, but we focus on breakthroughs. So kick up your feet, we're gonna put it in check. You're listening to brews, beards, and shipwrecks. Abuse for your ears to hear. One, two, one, two, a mic check. Stone bands for the ruckus on the scene. Just to announce. We got the brews, we got the beards. Tasty and abuse for your ears to hear. All right, well, cheers. Let's let's have a drink here. Cheers. Welcome to this episode of Brews, Beards, and Shipwrecks. I'm Jamie Bennett, aka Shun Jay from Royal Ruckus, and I'm here with my friend Tom Nichols. Welcome to the to the podcast. Thank you, Jamie. It's great to be on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, so we're we're sitting here at uh, Jerry's. 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 Somewhere in Northern Liberties, we couldn't see the street because it's raining. The weather is really horrible. Yeah. Horrible. So it, it, um, just, it was so beautiful earlier today, and then all of a sudden it just started pouring rain on us. And we kind of found this place by accident, too. It was yeah. like a port in a storm. So yeah. talk about shipwrecks. We, <laughs> yeah. We'll see yeah. how it goes. Yeah. Yeah, we're, we're going to do our best here. This is uh, probably going to be the noisiest episode I have, but I kind of uh, like it. It's kind of a neat little ambiance. Yeah. So we were, uh, we're in Philadelphia. Northern Liberties was the first, uh, the, the first suburb of Philadelphia. It's got an interesting mm-hmm. history. Um, my understanding, and you, I think you've done some historical research, and you can probably supplement what I'm about to say, but um, I think it was initially, like, wasn't it Germans settling in Northern Liberties? Well, I know they did in Germantown, okay. of course, and hence Germantown, and yeah. then Maniel. So it was the Dutch and Germans there. Okay. Um, Northern Liberties, I do know that because of the plentiful supply of Orthodox churches, Ukrainians, Russians, etc., that it was kind of a gathering place for people from another part of Europe, i.e. not Ireland, England, Germany, etc. So um, that's how I know Northern Liberties, is the place where all the odd churches are, as well. Yeah, yeah. So so I think initially, though, I mean, it may not have been Germans that were first, but it was a... I, I think initially it was like a place where people had to settle who weren't really accepted in the Philadelphian society. So and we're talking like 17th century, I believe, mm-hmm. um, pretty early on. And then a bunch of uh, Germans moved in at some point, and then as they were moving out, they started selling off their churches. Um, so like St. Michael the Archangel Russian Orthodox Church where you go used to be a German Reformed Church. It did, it did. And and then there, there was another Protestant um, church, I don't know if it was German or not, but 
that became St. Nicholas. But yes. Gosh, there's Ukrainians, Romanians, Carpatha uh, Rusins, mm-hmm. Russians. Slovak. Slovak. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a, just a really interesting neighborhood. It, yes, it is. It is. That it is. Yeah. So so we met up. We met up at a, at a place that was perfectly quiet. And, I mean, it was a bar. There were still people talking. And then they, right before we hit record... They turned on the football game. <laughs> it's 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 like every public place in this culture now. Yeah. There either is noise or the music that is too loud. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, you know, gone are the days when you go into a bar and there was just the sound of conversation. Yeah. And the pitter patter yeah. of the bartender in the background with an occasional glass. Yeah. I guess um, uh, marking against the sink or something. So yeah. yeah. Yeah, um, we, we still managed, even though this place is noisy, we did manage to find a place with couches. Which couches. This I is an love, unusual room. Love couches in a bar. This is. I, I mean, I feel like I'm in London or something. This is. Yeah. This is a private alcove-like setting, or it could even be a tiny room in the Union League with yeah. its own private bar. One, two, three, four, five, six, six, and they're not even bar stools. They're like grand high back chairs. And we're on a leather sofa with two almost high back Victorian chairs with a brick wall to the left of Jeremy. Jamie, I want to call you Jeremy all the time. It happens. And yes, so this this is a good place. Yeah, it's, it's pretty great. I've seen this place before, I've never been here though. So what are we drinking? I'm just drinking Coors Light. I'm not really a beer drinker. I like wine. But as they say, beer before wine. I'm going to get together later with a friend. He says that he okay. has a good small bottle of French wine. Nice. So um, that's why I'm doing this. I got you. I got you. Yeah, we, um, I'm drinking what they call the Citywide Special. And the, the Citywide Special is a Philadelphia thing. And originally it was a shot of bourbon... And PBR for like two or three bucks, like dirt cheap. Um, that is so cheap. Yeah, it is so cheap. I, That's I, scandalously cheap. I can't That's... remember the bar that started it. It's cheaper than Happy Hour. Oh yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't think it's that cheap anymore, but that's, that's oh, what yeah, it was yeah. originally. But so, like, um, in some places it might be five or six bucks, but still a great deal. And the divier the bar, the cheaper it is. Um, so the citywide special is kind of started at one bar. And then it spread. And I don't think it was called the Citywide Special until it spread. So <laughs> all over Philadelphia, you can get this. Not every single bar, but a lot of bars. So what I like to do when I come back to visit, and I'm not advocating this necessarily, mm-hmm. but it's great fun, is a little bit of a personal pub crawl for Citywide Specials. Huh. I'll hit six or eight bars in an evening. I just make sure that I take an Uber or a Listen to that, folks. Six <laughs> or eight bars in an evening, now, which begs the question, how many drinks in yeah, each so bar? Yeah, that, so that's two drinks in each bar because okay. it's, it's a shot and a beer at every bar. Holy smokes. So yeah. six times two, that's, um, that's a healthy gluttonous <laughs> intake. I, I try to stay it's, hydrated. It's amazing. And then make sure that when I do that, I, I take public transit or Uber. I don't feel so guilty now. <laughs> I, <laughs> No, but it's, it, it's, really, it's really good fun, and different bars have different policies, but some of them have what they call the countrywide special, which is a play on the words, and so they'll do, um, 
rather than a shot of bourbon and a PBR, they might have a German beer and a shot of Jaeger or a shot of tequila and a Tecate. See, I could, I could never get into the shot thing. I'm a total sissy. It's yeah. like when I get wine at a bar, it's just the wine and a <laughs> glass of water. I think it's the way my great aunt brought me up yeah. or something. But yeah. I see people drinking shots. And um, A, full of admiration, and B, <laughs> full of shock and awe. Yeah, How yeah. they can just down a drink that quickly, yeah. and the, but they sip the beer. So right, one drink right. gets consumed in less than a Manhattan second. So right. I, I guess I'm afraid of getting too high, too tipsy, in yeah. too short a time. Yeah. It's like you want the elevator to at least stagger right. a bit. Right? I, I, I do remember a time, and I, I'm not going to, you know... Uh, push on blast or anything, but I do remember a time where we went to what, was it Russian New Year's or was it Russian Christmas? Yes, at Father Gregory's Father, Father house. Gregory's house. Yeah. And shots were flowing. You see there? And I know you got in a little bit of trouble. I did because <laughs> I I was drinking one thing all night. Yeah. Monochrome, predictable red wine. Yeah. And then. With the massive collective toast, yeah. Russian vodka, that did me in. It, it, so it, I seem to know intuitively what I can right. handle. Yeah. And uh, and unfortunately, a terrible accident happened in your car, <laughs> which took you two or three days of clean. That was so embarrassing. <laughs> it was totally I, fun. I think you handled that really well. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I was. But, yeah, I, I was hoping for the projectile to end up entirely out of the car, and it didn't. But most of it was out of the car. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah. It just came on rather suddenly. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And especially if you're not used to drinking liquor. It it's was like sneak up on you. Saul of Tarsus getting knocked off the horse. <laughs> I, I love that juxtaposition that Saul of Tarsus getting knocked off the horse and converting to Christ. That getting drunk and vomiting reminded you of that. <laughs> well, it's, it's that. It's the quickness and lightning yeah. speed of it all, yeah. and yeah. the unexpected quality. But of course, the whole Saul of Tarsus story is much yeah. more profound than sure, sure. Than your, than your ordinary upchuck <laughs> automotive story. I love it. Yeah. Love it. So, so how did we meet? Uh, we we met at St. Michael the Archangel Church. Yeah. As it so happens, I came to Orthodoxy vis-a-vis Roman Catholicism, although yeah. for a long time I was kind of atheist, agnostic. Oh, really? But spiritual. Okay. But spiritual, okay. but not knowing where to go. Yeah. Was brought up in the pre-Vatican II Catholic Church. So I, I have an inbred love of ceremony and rich liturgy, sure. yeah. which I can never get out of my system. So okay. when the Catholic Church changed, when I was a small boy, I felt that the church was kind of committing a form of suicide. Okay. So, but, anyway, so, I've always been interested in what's about. So how, how, did, how did you end up in that sort of atheistic, agnostic space? Well, let's just say, as a young writer-to-be in high school, I like to read, and frankly, growing up, if you have half a mind, and if you're curious about books, literature, and thoughts, yeah. you're going to want to leave what the path that your parents set you on. Oh, it's, okay. it's kind of a natural thing. Um, how do you know what they taught you is true? If I had been born a Muslim, I would think that Islam is true. So, um, right, right. 
And as a writer-to-be, I started to read people like Camus and, and Sartre and, okay. and people who talked about faith and yeah. uh, Bertrand Russell, of course, essays and skepticism, yeah. and Those James Joyce, of absolutely course. Absolutely brilliant people. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. But I, I think James Joyce probably most affected me because of his Irish Catholic connection. Okay. So I decided at some point that I couldn't be Catholic any longer and okay. walked out of the line of, at, at, on Ash Wednesday, I think I turned around and walked out of the church. Really? I, I pretty much scandalized my mother. Okay. So it was a highly what, dramatic moment. What was that like? I mean, were, were you just in line going... Asking yourself why you were doing this? I thought it was hypocritical because I felt that I no longer believed and that I was going through the formula because I lived under my parents' roof. And I wanted to make an editorial statement like like Stephen Dedalus in A Portrait of the Artist where he refuses to kneel down and pray for his dying mother. She begged him to pray at her deathbed and he refused, which I... I'm kind of split about that. And of course, yeah. I think that was probably a horrible decision sure. on James Joyce's part. But when you're when you're 19, 18, 17, it seems pretty heroic when you want to break free, <laughs> right, you know? Right, right. It takes gumption because everybody you know. Right. Yeah. And you become a minority of one. The uh, the pushback was pretty severe. It was a highly dramatic moment in the car on the way back from church to our house. Lots of screaming and yelling, and nobody had a clue. How old were you again? I was maybe, I think, 17, 16 or something. So, but anyway, so there was this big thing about what you no longer believe. What do you consider yourself? Are you an atheist? And then, but I... I was afraid to say that, so I said, no, I'm agnostic. I just don't know. I just don't know. But even that, you couldn't say that. But those were the days when you could not openly proclaim atheism. Okay. And uh, certainly uh, I did, but um, it was extremely difficult. I remember one night... My father tried to break down my door and because he wanted me to stop reading. He, and I used to lock my bedroom door and he said, I want you to put the books away because I don't want you to go further down the path of whatever. Yeah. So there was oh. trouble at home. There was trouble at home. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I, I have an Ash Wednesday story. Um, it's less dramatic but definitely fits in the line of the hypocritical thing. This is before I was Orthodox. Um, I was Anglican, so when you're Anglican, you can kind of pick and choose. Um, anyway, I, I remember being in New Orleans at the cathedral, like the, the big Catholic cathedral right there. I've never the been there, but I've heard about okay. it. Okay. Yeah, so, I mean, it's a dramatic place. I mean, like, I think uh, Andrew Jackson, after he won the Battle of New Orleans, there, there's a legendary story, whether it's true or not, I don't know. After the Battle of New Orleans, he went in and laid his sword down uh, in front of the altar and then walked out. You know? So, like, there, there's there's a lot of history at this uh, cathedral. And it's also kind of interesting because outside you have all the 
um, tarot card readings and voodoo <laughs> going on and stuff. So, that, like in Florence, outside yeah. of the main cathedral, is it, is that they have a there? tent with so-called gypsy tarot card readers. Okay. Yeah. yeah, all in Italian, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's it's really interesting. Anyway, all I, all I really have to say about this is I went to a Nash Wednesday service there, completely hung over these couple of girls that um, this oh I, you know my brother lives in Oregon so he hosted a whole bunch of people for Mardi Gras and Mardi Gras there is not just one day you know it's weeks really or at least a few days leading up to it and I bet we all reeked of alcohol the next morning and we're all, only on a couple hours of sleep and, uh, and, and going in to get the imposition of the ashes and I remember sitting there thinking, what are we doing? <laughs> like, huh. I think we've missed the point, you know? Yeah. 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 No, I know. I know. <laughs> but and Ash Wednesday is also the name of a film starring Elizabeth Taylor. Okay. It's about plastic surgery. So I just thought that I would throw that in. I've, I've never One of her s- worst I've films. That. Yeah. I've never seen that. So, so you talked a little bit about um, being raised Catholic kind of um, sort of letting go of that faith and then at some point you must have come back what, what was that okay, like? Well, when, when I was when I was Catholic I always wanted to be a priest or okay. a monk that was in that was in the back of my mind yeah. but of course with the awakening of uh, sexuality that just changed that okay. in a heartbeat yeah, yeah. But how I came back, that was a very interesting thing. I, I um, went to Boston. I had to do alternate service as a, as a uh, conscientious objector. Okay. And I worked in an operating room. And I spent two and a half years in Boston, Cambridge, working and trying to write my first book. Okay. And also discovering my own sexuality. Went to my first gay bar. Okay. So I... You know, would go to gay bars every week, and finally could live that life freely and openly. But um, when I was in high school, all of my friends had a different date every weekend, and every Monday morning it was a different Don Juan seduction story. You know, by the oceanside, by the piers, by the mountains, and I, I was living like a saint. You know, yeah, yeah, uh, celibate. So for me, it was a uh, delayed kind of adolescent acting out okay. and it and it was uh, it was extraordinary in terms of finding out just how huge huge the subculture was right because right. this was um, 1970 1969 and to announce that you were gay to your family then was really paramount to saying that you had a mental illness. Nobody talked about it. Nobody yeah. talked about it. And it was really quite a scandalous thing. Uh, uh, how long would you say that you were sort of self-aware of that, but not open about it publicly? Very, 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 very early on, since I was a child. Really? So whenever you hear people say, that children have no sexuality or no awareness of sexuality, that's not true. And I knew very, very early on, I remember, I think it was in the fifth grade, I liked eyebrows, I liked dark eyebrows. 
But, uh, but I would look at beautiful young nuns who had beautiful eyebrows that uh, connected, not quite unibrows, but they would have beautiful <laughs> eyes. Yeah. So when I saw a male classmate with pronounced eyebrows, I remember one day he just turned to me in the schoolyard and he said, what are you looking at? And it dawned on me then. Wow. I thought, what yeah. am I looking at? He's noticing that I'm staring at him. Yeah. And I thought everybody did it. Yeah. It's like you just look at that which pleases you. Sure. And to me, it was, it was the most natural thing in the world. Yeah. But that was my first inclination that I might be different, that something was going a different path. Yeah. And that, that did concern me. Yeah. So, so then, fast forward many years later, uh, you eventually started to go to gay bars and be oh, open I did. about it. So, yeah. What, what, what was the process like of becoming more open? Because, I mean, it's one thing to be self-aware. It's another thing to let other people in. And you talked about this context in the 70s of being like, that's not okay to say. It was, I considered Boston a lot more liberated than Philadelphia, for instance, and uh, Cambridge and everything, because I was meeting people who were out, and uh, Beacon Hill seemed very accepting, even at that age. And this was the age when Hare was on stage, and uh, Janis Joplin, and Woodstock, and, and... experimental experiences were in the air and um, everybody was doing breaking the mold and going their own way but I I became involved in the early um, gay liberation movement at MIT used to hawk a gay liberation paper at Harvard Square called the Lavender Vision and I and I felt that I was really contributing and I um, I think I was because there was a lot of hatred and a lot of discrimination, even among the uh, countercultural people. Really? The, the head, the macho, straight, revolutionary male types who controlled underground newspapers like the old mole. And, um, you know, you would always see fag, fag in these yeah. newspapers. And I, I used to wonder, well, they sound just like John Wayne, who was supporting the Vietnam War. They're no different than the people who are creating havoc in Washington. This was a big concern for me. And they treated women the same way. The women revolutionaries, so-called, would make the coffee. They were stuck in the kitchen. So the, the awareness of that first wave of feminism was very, very slight. Yeah. It was, it, but I think it reflected the culture. It, sure, was a, it was a movement that was in organic evolution. Yeah. Yeah. But it was really nice to, to sort of catch that first wave. Yeah. Um, but I knew even as a kid in gay bars on a Friday night listening to hair blow out from the jukebox and to see the clientele with their afros and their long hippie hair, I knew that this was going to be a momentous change for society. You could feel it in your blood. Right. And there was a sense of excitement and exhilaration. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So so you're you're kind of involved in the scene. Um, Take me through, like, you know, how, I mean, what, what was that like? 
in that time? It was going to the bar. It was a lot of hard work. I worked very hard as an operating room orderly. I saw everything there was to be seen in a hospital, from autopsies to brain surgery, oh, wow. uh, cleaning up dead bodies, bringing dead babies to the morgue. I grew up fast. And, and I remember that I brought so many people to the OR and would hold them for spinal anesthesia. I mean, old quivering men and old women. And I remember even in my atheism or in my agnosticism, I always felt a profound spiritual... I felt that what I was doing was, was somehow really important, touching these people as they were... It was... The hospital was extraordinary. So... But again, it was about about falling in love, being disappointed in love, falling in love with all the wrong people, as it's true for everybody when they're 20 and 21. Um, it was a life of excess to some extent. A love affair does not work. You get mad at the world, you get mad at the powers that be, you go out, you have lots of one night stands. It truly was about one night stands, having fun, doing the stuff that I didn't do as a teenager. And uh, and the sense was that there were no boundaries, that you could just keep living life, you could push down on the gas pedal, have more and more and more experiences. I was reading Henry Miller at the time, and so the advice was, experience is king. You should experience everything. Even the French poets were saying that. Experience everything, everything, everything. Nothing human is foreign to me. So it, it became almost my M.O. Yeah. To, I would go to a bar and say, hmm, I've never slept with an Eskimo or an Ethiopian <laughs> or, a, oh, oh wow. you know, yeah. there's, there's an Egyptian, you know, yeah. I need to put that down um, into my diary. So it was this Interesting. kind of a Pac-Man consumption of experience. <laughs> I love that description. <laughs> wow. And so how much can you take? How much can you consume? without an intelligent, mature processing right. before you break, yeah. you know, and how fast can you go? The drug culture at that time was really beginning to mushroom. Only then it was acid, okay. and everybody was trying to sort of get me to take acid. And these were not like street people without credentials or without right. great jobs. These were Harvard professors and published playwrights yeah. and, you know, people wow. with houses. But acid, acid was the big thing. Okay. I never took acid, by the way. I always said no. What, what kept you I from always doing said that, no. though? I mean, if your you whole know, thing was about collecting experiences, why not? You know, as wild as I was, with the acid thing, I got an intuitive stop sign as big as a house, and I knew that I could not go down that route. Okay. So I always said no to acid, but I smoked lots of grass. But everybody <laughs> smoked grass right, and right, hashish right. and, you know, yeah. whatever. So, I mean, that was... It became 
just a very, very ordinary thing at parties. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then I became involved. The uh, gay liberation movement became more political. Okay. I remember we, we traveled from Boston to Washington, D.C. for one of the Black Panther conventions. So we went down in a in a VW bus, and so that was a whole that was a whole experience. <laughs> um, we never met any Black Panthers, but the Black Panthers were always kind of ambivalent about the gay lib people. I think Huey Newton was very very pro gay, but most of the Black Panthers were not. Okay. But um, you know. Well, in a lot of ways, um, that remains to this day sort of a taboo subject in some sectors of the community. Yeah. So I I don't know if you have any experience with that or have any friends that have spoken to that issue, but I'd be curious. I did. I mean, I know that there's a large uh, down-low population among black men, and... uh, and that still continues to this day. Yeah. And uh, there is some difficulty there. Yeah. It also exists in Latino culture. Okay. And I think it's probably more pronounced there. Okay. Where it's yeah. very, 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 very secretive. Um, I'm not saying that, I mean, there are many out and so-called proud Latino right. gay people. Right, of course. But, uh, um, there are twice as many who are not. Right. That's interesting. Yeah, it's, and you know, with with my exposure to hip hop culture and stuff, it's only been in maybe the last five or six years that it's become sort of acceptable. Uh, yeah, it's, it, it's it's been a topic, but I guess it's okay to use slurs and rap music even a decade ago. You know, about homosexuality. Yeah. And, and it's, gosh, I think it was Macklemore had a song about about love and loving, you know, whoever you want to or whatever. I, yeah. I, I don't remember exactly how the song goes. I yeah. I follow Macklemore that closely. But I remember hearing that on the radio and going, wow, that's really interesting because the hip-hop community has not been open to this idea, but the culture has shifted and hip-hop has been just a little behind the culture on, mm-hmm. on that regard. So. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, but I um, I remember when I first slept with the black man, I, I believe that was in Philadelphia. That was not in Boston. Okay. There were not too many black out gay men in Boston when I was there. Right. Although I think there was one in our Beacon Hill crowd. Okay. But... Um, that really happened when I, when I lived in Colorado, actually. But um, certainly, my my first partner was an African American guy, a Penn graduate, and he had tremendous problems with his family. His uh, mother did not want him to be gay, so there were there was a lot of stress and a lot of struggle. Yeah. Um, I would uh, bring him home to my family. Now, I did not tell my parents that I was gay. I was afraid to sort of say that I had already done too much to them. I had told them that I was no longer Catholic, that I was agnostic. I had told them that I was a pacifist. 
I was a conscientious objector and not going to Vietnam. That was a scandal. Yeah. And I could not do the third thing sure. and tell them I was gay. I right. thought, no, 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 this is just too much. So when I was in Boston, I had a kind of a breakdown and was sort of like sent home, if you will, against my will. And the breakdown was kind of an epiphany for me. It was kind of a strange experience. But when I was home again, they knew at that point that I was gay. And they, they never said anything about it, okay. much to their credit. They were much more accepting and charitable than I would have ever dreamed. Interesting. And my mother was only afraid, she was afraid for my spiritual welfare. Having, having grown up in a large Irish Catholic family, the youngest of 13 children, she said, I'm concerned about your soul and about homosexuality in the Bible, but I still love you, and it doesn't, yeah. you know, yeah. but this is a concern of mine, and I'm just expressing it. Right. And right. so right. this was something that I had to deal with. She later came full circle. There's a lot of confusion around, around homosexuality. I think to this day, there's some confusion within me. Um, are the new theologians right? Are those passages in scripture, have they been misapplied, misinterpreted? Uh, do they only refer to a certain act, to, to uh, men then who were primarily heterosexual, who indulged in gay sex as a kind of a Friday night frolic? Because the whole concept of a, of a gay emotional life, yeah. you know, an entirely gay person, didn't exist then. Right. It didn't exist. It's, it's a fairly new construct. Yeah, and it's still a source of confusion. And this, I mean, my, my uh, Christian friends and my even Orthodox gay friends, we, we all talk about this. And it's, it's, it's ironic and it's so confusing that we say, were we to be in an automobile accident tomorrow and a priest were to come to our bedside, as it were, we would confess our gay sins, as it were, because we just don't know. We just don't know. And that still lingers. I guess we're all slaves to our baptism. I can't entirely liberate myself. This is why I could never become... I was always a gay activist, and I did a lot of stuff in gay activism, but there was always this spiritual kind of pushback. Like, what if you die in your sleep? Are you going to be good to go? Interesting, yeah. You know? And that was always a worry, always a worry. And so, I mean, as it stands now, I know gay Catholic priests who... I see at parties, and, yeah. and uh, I think I think we all we all struggle with that to some degree. People may appear liberated, and oh, well, of course it's fine. Yeah. But I but I don't but I don't believe it. I don't I don't really really believe it. Uh, so, so there's sort of there's sort of still a discomfort in your stomach. It sounds like with how to sort it all out. Well, there probably would be less so if I were to fall in love with somebody. You see, 
I think I think the whole nature of like falling in love with somebody changes something about same-sex attraction. Okay. Certainly promiscuity, wild Don Juan promiscuity, whether you're gay or straight. I mean, sure. it, may, it may feel wonderful. <clears throat> you get a diverse uh, hors d'oeuvre sense of <laughs> tasting the right. delights when the moon is full. Right. Who could not like those sure. earthly delights? Sure. It's, we all have this weak human nature, and yeah. it can be wonderful. But that definitely um, would is probably something that we should not do however falling in love changes the speedometer somehow because that involves the heart and, and the head and as you get to know somebody sex becomes less and less important this is the irony of it all the sex becomes almost too mundane and then you I've always noticed that with my long-term relationships, the sex was, uh, I don't want to use the word sacramental because that would be sacrilegious, but in, in, in the <laughs> yeah. context of a, of a long-term relationship, it's just not, well, I should probably stop here because I'm not really, okay. I think it, uh, It becomes, I think that promiscuity, what's your appetite for more promiscuity? And once you've opened those doors really, really wide, it's very hard to go back and settle for one person. Sure. Because you're used to variety and you're used to fulfilling downward cycles of your mood. Right, it, can, right. it, can, it can become difficult. So there's a reason why people say, don't open those doors, don't go down that path. Right, right. But you have to, I had to find that out for myself. Yeah. Why would I accept somebody's word on that? Right. Yeah. So. Yeah, that, that's interesting. I, I, I think um, that's always been one of the things for me is fear of opening certain doors. Because I know, I know how my heart is, you know, and there are certain doors that if I were ever to open them, I don't think they could be closed again, or it would yeah. be great difficulty to close them. Um, it's yeah. yes, 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 and and that's really true. So not that they can't be closed. Sure, sure. Be- because because they can, but uh, you're gonna feel the pain of the closure from time to time. Yeah. You're going to feel, in a sense, like a prisoner. Yeah, and, and we see this in, in the history of our saints and things. Like, we, I mean, the obvious example is St. Mary of Egypt, who was extremely promiscuous. Uh, for her to close the door on that, she almost had to go to such extremes. She lived in a desert as a hermit. Like, like that is how she closed the door in promiscuity. She just had to get away from everyone. And... And I, I know that's probably not the same for everybody. We don't all we don't all have to go out to the desert because we're suffering too many people. But I think I think that's a good lesson for us to look at and go, goodness, you know, repentance. Just as you know, our our personal sins have different levels of involvement, so our repentance mm. is going to have different levels as well. Yes, yes, that's true. But I yeah. Go, no, go ahead. I I just thought of something. Years ago, 
I was visiting somebody in the hospital, and he was near death. He was an older gay man. And I went there with my then partner. And as we were talking to him, this man is, is saying, now he is very, very near death. And he's saying, I wish right now I had an 18-year-old boy. And I'm thinking, well, I can understand that because it's life-affirming and it's life-enhancing. It's the opposite of death. It's almost like a, like a rebellion, like a fist in the face of death. I affirm life, I'm on the side of life. On the other hand, it's a horrible thing to say when you're on the eve of your own death. And you're thinking of that and not the salvation or welfare, yeah. if I could sound corny for a moment, of your yeah. soul. Yeah. So I, that always, I always thought, I hope I never say that. I hope I yeah. never, never say that. Yeah. Right. Well, I want to I take a real quick break here and play a real ruckus song. Okay. Uh, I want to play a song called uh, Bad Haircuts. And... We take a sample from the Beatles, so the song never ended up getting recorded and released. Oh, I love your choice. That's great. <laughs> but one of, the, one of the reasons I want to play this song is, um, so in the demo version, which is what I'm going to play, um, I, so the, so the whole song is like this big joke about us accidentally getting bad haircuts when we go down to the, to the shop to get our haircut. And... The, one of my frustrations in my verse is that I have a date that night with a 17-year-old girl. Now, I was like 20 at the time when I wrote no. this song, so it wasn't too bad. Well, I bad. just mentioned 18-year-old boy. Right, that, 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 that's I, what made I, me think yeah, of it. Yeah, so, I know. What an alignment. Um, so, yes. So, actually, when we went to record that uh, with our producers who were trying to get us a record deal, uh, they wouldn't let me say chick who's 17 uh, so I had to change it to girl so pretty which didn't work as well in the rhyme but I totally understood why they didn't want me to say that um, and particularly since uh, the angle they were taking was trying to get us a, a record deal in the Christian music industry and uh, you definitely can't say that in the you're not like sweeting <laughs> letting in all these immigrants it's just like the road to suicide right I know. anyway so um this is uh, Brews, Beers, and Shipwrecks, and we're going to play Bad Haircuts by Royal Rushes. What have you done? Yo, my hair's falling out, now I need a new style. There's no good salons on the Miracle Mile. I went to Supercut, saw a girl with a smile. Asked for a haircut, she said it'd be a while. Got my hair done, came out an hour later. Started walking home, I got tripped by a skater. I said, watch out, kid, or I'll talk to you later. He left at me and said I had hair like Ralph Nader. Well, my hair goes really fast, and it's getting kind of drippy. Peanut butter skippy. I'll go back to the store, get the snippy snippy. Maybe I look better if I lived in Mississippi.
back to Brews, Beards, and Shipwrecks. I'm your host, Jamie Bennett, also known as Chun Jay from World Ruckus. I'm here with my good friend, Tom Nichols. And uh, we are, while we were off air, we were kind of exploring some things, and I, I almost regret <laughs> turning the microphone off. But one, one of the things we talked about is um, my experience with a group called the Samson Society. And Samson Society is a weekly meeting of, of men. Uh, and we, we simply meet to talk, and it's a safe place, and everything we say in the meeting stays in the meeting. I've been in the group for almost 10 years. Um, there is a podcast, actually, I highly recommend it. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's called the Pirate Month Podcast. Uh, I've been on it twice, um, and, and one of the hosts is my boss, and one of the hosts is a friend of mine, so full disclosure. Uh, <laughs> But, you know, the, the, uh, one of the things that I was very intrigued by over the years is this um, sense of same-sex attraction among men who identify as straight. And I've encountered a lot more in the Samson Society than I ever expected. You know, and some of these men are married, some of these men um, are not, but they've carried it like it's a burden. And I would love to hear your thoughts on that and your experiences with uh, men that fit that description. Yeah, this is, um, I actually came out or had my first sexual experience with, I guess, a a straight friend of my brother's. And uh, so we, um, I was quite used to this at a very early age. And when I was involved with this, I just assumed that all boys uh, did it with all boys. I thought this was just a part of the process of growing up mm. and a part of the process of exploring sexuality. Yeah. That you were curious about girls, and I was curious about girls. I used to make out with a lot of girls, and and but I was also curious about boys, too. Um, so... And it was only later that I discovered that there were these little uh, Berlin walls. And um, <laughs> that's quite the description. Yeah, yeah. And but and there were only Berlin walls because of uh, of the labels that society likes to put on it. I yeah. suppose. So uh, you know, defining yourself as either gay or straight, even. Defining yourself as bisexual uh, is often confusing for some people. There are many gay people who don't like the label bisexual, who right. who, who say that they don't like bisexual, but, oh, they're really gay. They, they're just in denial. And there are straight people, of course, who say, you're really gay. If you have sex with a man, you're gay. Yeah. That's it. It's over. You're gay. <laughs> you, you know, you you have to choose. It's either a man or a woman. There's no nuance. There's no gray sure. zone. There's never a time. There's I've no such thing as like situational homosexuality. Situational homosexuality rules the world. I mean, that's that's the fact behind the cloud in the sky. This is and and it's what everybody wants to deny. And and um, it's as prevalent today as it was in the 70s and especially with men um, I heard Milo Yiannopoulos or was it Ann Coulter 
talk about male homosexuality and he was talking about lesbianism how it uh, wasn't even in the ancient world but that that men have been having sex with each other since the since the dawn of creation and mm. and, and and so with me I think that why primarily or self-identified straight men yeah. have download sex with gay men first of all as we were talking about during the break, it's a kind of a band-aid. It's a kind of like an emotional right. rescue without right. being too much of an emotional rescue because yeah. a self-identified straight man primarily is still straight in his consciousness. Yeah. He will basically not fall in love with a man. And sometimes there are clearly defined boundaries. Yeah. Thou shalt not kiss on the lips. Thou shalt not do this. Yeah. But there are things... For instance, if I may use a Bill Clinton expression, I did not have sex with that woman. Right, yeah. Um, a, what they call a BJ is considered by many people, even among evangelical Christians, yeah. as not real sex. Right. Right. And I met a very devout evangelical Christian guy who was going with a very good female friend of mine. And when she said that he wanted her to do that, I said, how is this possible? He was a real holier-than-thou sort. And, and, and oh, she said, wow. but he doesn't consider it real sex. Ah. It's just foreplay. It's, it's just foreplay. It's, it's not real sex. <laughs> it's, it's the sin of making out. Right. So I thought, oh, oh wow. this is really interesting. <laughs> yeah. So this is how he gets around it. Anyway, it's a, I think it's the whole fear of labels. Um straight men who have sex with gay men on the side usually it's it's in the name of utility it's in the name of getting off yeah. it's because the gay man will do everything to worship them in a yeah. body sense and some straight men are so let's face it they're so tired of doing what society expects them to do with the woman yeah. worshiping and pleasing the woman right. always you know they're always the engine the driving engine and so I've heard from many straight men that they're just plumb exhausted mm. they're exhausted and it's pleasurable to them yeah. when a gay man comes on to them and they suddenly they suddenly become an object of veneration and so yeah. they can lay back and eat an apple and be adored and glorified in a physical sense. And I've heard this time and time again. And because they, they get to feel what a woman feels, but not quite in the same way, but they, but they get to feel appreciated. And it, it got me to thinking, well, what is wrong with the state of relations between men and women when a male is always expected to be the engine pleaser. Yeah. You yeah. know, the poor right. man who's yeah. always the driving force, you know, I need to meet your pleasure expectations. Yeah. But his needs, his little fetish needs are not being met. Yeah. So they so they so they learn to incorporate this. That's interesting. No, I've had I've had friends that have been in, in same-sex relationships or same-sex experiences or whatever, but identify as straight, and then after they feel this huge bout of self-loathing, 
What, what do you make of that? Why do you think that is? I think because desire, you know, desire, human desire is so powerful. Human desire, when it when it's starved and when it comes out in its ultimate I'm hungry mode is so powerful it will overturn ideologies it will overturn the strictest religious convictions that the, the sheer human hunger for contact this is how powerful it's like one of our, our like major motivators I mean we all need love it's, it's like it's like the primary mover and shaker so the self-flow thing is I, I think that part of it is like artificial they've been taught that same-sex stuff is um, you know it's like uh, fag stuff it, I mean it, it's like had a bad label for a long time yeah but um, maybe they maybe they they feel it's kind of base because they would like to uh to incorporate their physicality with their emotional life. And when they compartmentalize it, yeah. uh, go to a glory hole in a gas station, for instance, if I could be so crass. Right. But, but that would be a I mean, prime a example yeah. of compartmentalization. It's like, I just need to get off. I yeah. don't want to fall in love. I don't want a six-month um, uh, courtship. I don't want to take you to six dinners. I just want to feel good and to get this this uh, albatross right. off my private parts. <laughs> and so, <laughs> yeah. and so, yeah. when that's finished, we all feel a sense of letdown, even if yeah. if it's with the person that we love. There's always this kind of down escalator feeling after the big O. We right. all feel. So right. even in the finest scenarios, there's a feeling of letdown. When you when you go to the to uh, situations where there's no emotional connection, that feeling of letdown will easily turn into disgust. Yeah. Because yeah. there's no real human connection. You've both used each other. Oh, yeah. As a as a way to sort of get off, yeah. and I think that's when our higher selves or our spiritual nature kind of kicks us, and we're yeah. reminded yeah. that we're, um, you know, we're not just totally machines. We're not right. sexual robots. Right. That's how I see it. No, that makes a lot of sense to me. And one of the things that's that's funny to me in hindsight, the, the older I get, the more experiences I have, the more mistakes I make. I look back and, um, you know, virginal Jamie in high school, you know, I was actually a bit of a player in a pretty innocent way. Um, like, my senior year and early in college, I could make out with girls left and right. But I'll tell you what, I always felt bad if I didn't actually care about her. Because I had that recognition that I'm using her. Now, other guys were going out and doing that and so much more without a bit of remorse. Uh, for me, it was kind of funny. Like, some of the girls... I, I remember one girl in particular after prom. Um, I didn't, she wasn't even my prom day. Mm. I didn't make it out with her. I apologized later. She thought I was weird. Like, what? 
Like, why would you apologize for that? We both used each other, right? Yeah. <laughs> but the, Even but, in, a, in a fairly innocent way. Like, it really didn't go very far. Um, see, making out, that's... that's uh, I remember making out with a girl in a house that was being built right next to ours in, in the country. Okay. She was a tomboy. She was blonde. And I was just crazy about her. And we had these mad, passionate make-out sessions... It never went to any other yeah, yeah. degree, but it was just the, the whole make-out experience. It was fast and furious and insane. Yeah. And yeah. then it was over. Right. But... And, I, and I've always said, too, especially in, in this culture where we are right now, where like it's very much a hookup culture, and that's mm. becoming increasingly acceptable. It doesn't matter... <clears throat> You know, with which orientation, it's becoming increasingly acceptable um, societally to hook up. Um, ah, crap! I forgot where I was going. With that. <laughs> That's the beer. That is the That's beer. The, the beer That's always sets that mouse trap. Right. <laughs> it it just uh, flicks you into another little orbit. Just ignore it. And just be Jamie. You'll get the thought back again. <laughs> it's cool. Just get the thought back so, again. So we, we did the... Are you about to say something? No, no. I was you, you were just waiting for you. Pass. No, no. Yeah. Okay. So um, there's a couple other things I want to talk about uh, before we move forward. But one of the things I think we got off track about was how you sort of refound your faith in Christ and the church. How did that happen? Well... It was a slow process, but I had gone to Colorado after my CO service was up. And I had gone to Colorado to finish up a book. And um, I spent a year in Colorado. It was a lot of fun. But I came back to Boston, and it was a different city. It, it was like things had changed. Like I, um, a different reel of the film. And I... Um, the, the old ways weren't working for me yeah. anymore. And I remember I rented a room where Charles Sumner, Senator Charles Sumner used to live on Hancock Street in Beacon Hill. Okay. It was and so it was it was it was in that house that I I had this psychic breakthrough I don't know, maybe it was partially psychotic because <laughs> But when you're in bed and, and you find that you can't leave and you're thinking that you're, you're seeing visions on the ceiling and uh, you're getting messages from here and there, and, but they were all of a spiritual nature. Now, this was in 1971, perhaps, but I, I was getting things about the uh, pole shift in, like, 1971. Yeah. And um, other things that Edgar Casey talks about. So it, for me, it was a very, very scary thing. I can't possibly do a USA Today abbreviated version of it right, here. Right. But I have written about it because okay. it's very complicated. Sure. But the upshot was was that I knew that what I had been uh, sort of. Uh, brandishing about as my personal philosophy was not the way things were. Okay. So that was the upshot. So um, from there, I went back to my home in Pennsylvania. Okay. There was this 
minor crisis and my parents came to sort of get me. Okay. I'll leave out the dirty details. Sure. Yeah. But it was a real growing up experience. Okay. Um, when I went back to Pennsylvania, I then returned to my thoughts that should I be a monk or a priest again? You see, I was, uh, yeah, I was yeah. back to square one. Okay. I'd like gone through the whole gay lib thing. Yeah. I thought, should I be celibate? Because I, I had gotten, I had gotten feelings and felt things and thought I had seen things about uh, homosexuality. And the one thing I saw was that there would be something in the future where gay men couldn't couldn't have sex, but they could only hug and kiss one another. And I think this is a precursor to AIDS. So just to give you like an example. Okay. So, all right. So so I'm at home. I'm like jogging every day. I'm getting I'm getting stronger and stronger. Yeah. And I'm thinking sexual thoughts again. You know, because yeah. it, it's like back to square one. But sure. But I went to a Benedictine monastery, all right, okay. on a retreat. And it was a monastery that I thought to discern whether I had a vocation to be a monk or a priest. So I'm at this monastery. I arrive late at night on a, on a Greyhound bus. The, the fat monk who greets me, it's a feast day, offers me a beer. I sit down at a table with these Benedictine monks. All right. And the first thing one of the monks says to me is, I milked a cow today and I got extremely horny. Well, this is not what I wanted to hear. <laughs> wow. You see? Yeah. But this is what this actual monk said. And I said, That's wow. A way to break the ice. And I'm thinking, <laughs> it's like this, the new church after Vatican II? Like, yeah. like wow, wow. This is really real. This is real. And it may have been real for him, but anyway, so I meet, oddly enough, that same night, I meet a fellow retreat. He's like a violin student. He's about my age, 20-something, good-looking, everything. We have this talk. We share experiences. As it turns out, his cell is right next to mine. The walls are paper thin. So I'm thinking, shucks. You know, I was just getting into his personality. So I'm thinking, as we're trying to go to sleep, I convince myself that I hear the rustling of sheets on the other side of this paper-thin wall. Anyway, the end result of this is a Philip Roth novel. If you've ever read Philip Roth, well, you know, it, it's like Google Philip Roth. So, so uh, uh, Portnoy's Complaint. So I did a... I did a uh, Portnoy's complaint thing so that he could hear it because I thought he was doing the same thing. Well, so I go to sleep in my cell and I'm on my stomach. Something pulls me out of my bed. Something grabs me by the ankles, yanks me down off the bed. And it was this uh, kind of spiritual speak through my ears, but it was a real voice although not quite in the same way that we would hear a voice here. And it said, you don't do that in here. You don't do that in here, meaning what I did. You know, and it scared the living daylights out of me. I shot up in bed. There was nobody in the cell. It was something, I felt something grip my ankles. My body jerked to the end of the cot. So whether it was a spirit presence, the spirit of an old monk, Maybe an angel or something. Yeah. I, I don't know. But I felt wow. so guilty.
We're knocking the microphone down. Well, that, did, did, did that just levitate or something? <laughs> it did. I don't believe I knocked it down. I, I think it was. But, um, okay, all right. The cord attached the to cor- it. Uh, the cord, okay. I have headphones on. That was my fault. Okay, okay, all right. <laughs> so, needless to say, it was. Wow. It was a very scary experience. Yeah. Because something pulled me off the pot. It was not a dream. It was not a dream. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a pivotal moment for you. mm Mm-hmm. Very, 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 very pivotal. What what happened after that? And I used it in one of my books, uh, Walking on Water. Okay. And uh, so after that, I was as good as gold at this retreat. But oddly enough, I think the uh, 20-something caretaker in Desert Boots made a pass at me. Oh, really? About two days later. Okay. It's almost like a test, but I ignored it. Okay. And, I, and it was very, very hard. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about true confessions. Yeah, no, that's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. So. So did you, did you end up back in the Catholic Church then for a while? Is that what happened? Well, I tried to go to Mass... I would always try to find a church, no matter where I lived, whether it was in Germantown or Center City. But I would go to these masses, and they were all Novus Ordo masses. And I would leave so disappointed. Sometimes I would find myself getting angry midway through the mass because of all the changes, and it just wasn't the church I grew up with. And it was so disappointing. So I, I would go to... Uh, Anglo-Catholic masses. I went to uh, St. Clement's okay. on Cherry Street, but I couldn't quite buy into the whole Anglican thing. Yeah. Almost, but not quite. Right. There was always a problem. Then I would go. I would go back to the Catholic Church, and I would think, well, what else is there? There's, um, you know, do I go back to being an agnostic? So I went back to being just plainly spiritual, and then I I got involved in the New Age movement. Reading lots of Edgar Casey, uh, Jane Roberts, uh, Seth Speaks. And how long ago was this? Oh, this was probably in the in the eighties and nineties. Okay, okay. I interviewed a lot of uh, psychics and read tons of psychic literature, okay. and uh, came to believe in reincarnation for a while, um, and really try to incorporate that with a form of Christianity okay. because it, it's um, um, to my understanding that the early Christian church did in fact believe in some form of reincarnation but it was overturned by the church fathers um, so that that was always a problem uh, but the whole new age spirituality thing didn't quite give you the daily spiritual comfort was all just um, grandiose theories and stories about what happens after death. But I also became aware that there is a kind of a psychic life and that that there is life after death. This was aside from any organized thing. Um, So I had a, a, a very good friend die. He was killed. He was electrocuted in West Philadelphia on a rainy night in November. He was only 23. And four days after his death, 
again, I'm asleep, I'm on my stomach, and I felt a presence by my bedroom door, and I felt an energy form invade my body. Now, this, this sounds wow. totally crazy, but I felt something invade and take possession of my body, and my right arm was kind of pushed against my body. I didn't know what was happening yeah. until I felt a series of pats on my forehead, and then I knew it was him, because his secret signal to me, not so secret, but when he would see me in the apartment, he would always come up to me and pat me on the forehead. That was his secret hello. That was his handshake. When I felt the pats, I knew it was a visitation from his spirit before he went on. I was very scared, but I said, Danny, okay, um, you're here. You can move on now. And then it stopped. The whole wow. thing subsided. That's crazy. And, and, and so this kind of knowledge of that other life, yeah. that big spiritual reality, helped me, I think, on my road to Orthodox. Yeah. You know, when I worked through all that, all that sort of uh, Catholic stuff, the Catholic stuff is very powerful. Um, the only true church, there's no salvation outside the Catholic Church. The stuff, you know, a lot of, a lot of uh, catechisms, uh, lessons for many years. Yeah, yeah. But um, orthodoxy wasn't so different. I mean, it's, you know, it's not like going from evangelical Protestantism right. to orthodoxy. Right. I mean, it, it was more of a similar bedrock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, probably 95% of the Catholic Catechism is consistent with the Orthodox faith. Yeah. I mean, you know, maybe we'd put it differently in a few places, but mm -hmm. the essence of it is very similar. Yeah. And so I, I can't say that I struggle now. Sometimes I have attacks of Catholic nostalgia. Sure. I'll get... I'll Remember uh, Corpus Christi uh, uh, processions, or the uh, traditional Latin Mass, yeah. or uh, the tall jeweled mitres and everything. Right, uh, you know, right, when right. I went yeah. to Rome and saw St. Peter's, what right. really, really threw me was the corpse in a glass casket of an Eastern Catholic bishop in essentially Orthodox vestments right, yeah. and an Orthodox mitre. Yeah. So that so there 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 always these little attacks of Catholic nostalgia. Yeah. But yeah. it's all nostalgia. Yeah. Certain but you know, you know, if that if that overwhelms you too much, you know, there there is a um, I think it's Christ the King, Western Rite, Orthodox Church up uh, in Tully Town, I think. You really? Go yeah, there yeah. For a service. Uh, that that certainly did it for me as a former Anglo Catholic. You see, you must go through the same thing. I do. I mean, I wasn't Anglo-Catholic for as long as you were Catholic. Yeah, yeah. You know, it wasn't in my bones as, as much. But, yeah, I do get that sometimes. And, yeah. Um, I went up there for a couple of services, and it definitely filled my tank in that regard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wonderful priest up there. I, I think it's the same Father Benedict or something like that. Like, well, <laughs> how appropriate, right? right? Father Benedict. Exactly. 
I might have I might have the name wrong, but it's it's pretty close. I mean, they even uh, before some of their services, they did a rosary together, and there's a lot up there. Yeah, the ro- the rosary in orthodoxy is very very um, interesting. I. I don't know. I mean, I, I, you know, I read an old book about Manathos that I found in St. Michael the Archangel Church. Yeah. And it was written in the 30s by an Englishman. And he tours all of the monasteries with a friend. And, of course, he does it from an Anglican kind of skeptical, secular point of view. And I was amazed. It's called The 1,000 Beards of Mount Athos. I love that title. And awesome. there are incredible photographs, but also when he talks to these old monks, when they talk about their their former passion-filled lives, yeah. they talk about boys and girls interchangeably. Really? As if it was no big deal. Wow. In a, in a kind of a you-understood kind of a way. Yeah, yeah. That really got to me. Is that book available still? Well, I don't know. I think it's out of print, but I have my copy. It's it's a strange book. It's a strange book because of because of the um, honesty. And one of the travelers meets a friend of his, a gay man, who became a monk because he he wanted to be a nun. That's what yeah. that's what he tells him. Yeah. He said, "Oh, you're surprised to sort of see me here, wow. but I always wanted to be a nun. Don't you know that?" And he's dancing around the mountainside. Yeah. And I'm thinking, wow, does like this go on on Mount Athos? <laughs> A- apparently, there are some. Yeah. There's like something, well, controversial stuff maybe, but it's in the book. It sounds like that book. I can't make this stuff up. It, it needs to be scanned in. I know. Yeah, yeah. It needs to <laughs> Who be do scanned. we hire to do that? That needs to happen. That sounds amazing. That's yeah. Very interesting. I I was a little shocked to tell you the truth yeah yeah you know because some of the old monks made a play for the author's young companion who was in fact a very very handsome gay man yeah and some of the old monks would say would you like to spend the night with me and they thought nothing of it i have yeah. a, i have a bottle of wine i have some cheese yeah, yeah. so Interesting. yeah so I want to take another break. Um, I want to roll into my song called The Lone Gunman. Um, it's singular and plural on purpose. Okay. Lone Gunman. And um, the, the reason it's singular and plural is because I wanted to capture that tension in life between ourselves as individuals and ourselves in community. All right. And I think monasticism is a good example of that. The church is a good example of that. We come in as individuals. We, we say the creed, I believe, but we say it in unison together. Um, and so The Lone Gunman was actually supposed to be the title of my solo album. And that was going to be a separate project from The Summer of the Cicadas that I, that I gave you the CD for. But we ended up merging them as a double album. And... Um, one of the reasons I want to play The Lone Gunman right here is because I think it's, it's sort of a posse jam. Like, I brought in all my friends to rap on it, uh, but we, we, we all come in as individuals, but we're a collective as well. And I think it fits in with some of the things we've been talking about. Okay. So let's, let's go ahead and play The Lone Gunman. All right. That's great. Hi, right, yo, yo. 
We're just doing this boys to men style, just no cussing, right? Kicking down the doors, we the crew bringing a ruckus. Got that moral cover, so I'm advocating justice for the loveless and the love. Rich and poor, the weak and toughest. We alone, but we're together, and together we some roughnecks. I'm less fivo, more typo negative. I'm DIY eating homemade potato chips. Eight bit simple ish, with the quick label. It's tripping on my riches like tiptoes in a drainage ditch. You drench with the fix. Click, click the mouse on my computer. Is the new pistol whip attempted merger? My belief is firmer than my grip on mince meat, cause the dream is I got that skin in the game, not just talking fuss and theory. Others bull with the claims and Axel cuss and cheery getting buried at the pub with my crew and all the rest. Watching footy with us out, hit up south by southwest. I gotta pee, I should have brought a bottle in. Dude, you got a jug right there. No man, I'm gonna age my kombucha in there. <laughs> Hey, Jamie. How's it going? <laughs> it's good. I've had a the good rain time. has stopped outside. I think we're in clear weather. I hope stuff. that stays the case for a while. I know. Because I want to walk to my car 
uh, unmolested by the rain. In peace, sure. I know. Exactly. So we've talked a lot about um, your profession without actually talking about your profession. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about what you do, and then you have a pretty notable uh, situation um, in that's that's unique when you became a columnist mm-hmm. for a local paper. So why don't why don't you uh, talk about that? Well, I started writing for. Uh, newspapers right right out of high school and um, I started really writing for the alternative press in Boston and then in uh, Philadelphia wrote for the distant drummer um, that was my first column it was called Omar Bloom at White Plains Hospital and it was a satirical New Yorker style column where the the main character was essentially kind of ambiguous. He was kind of a bisexual guy, okay. so I so I could you know talk about many things, um, not uh, sexual. But um, and then I became. Um, I wrote for the uh, Gay Alternative in um, Philadelphia, and then in the early '80s became, I guess, the first out gay columnist for a major alternative so-called straight weekly newspaper. And this was at a time when there weren't any gay columnists per se. There was no Dan Savage. There was nothing, nothing like that. You only had the gay press, and that's where gay writers wrote, was in the gay press. You didn't go into the mainstream press even if it was alternative mainstream. You just didn't go there. Yeah. It was kind of of ghettoized. Yes, it was extremely ghettoized. And So my job was to sort of write about my life and gay issues for a straight audience. So I always had to keep that in mind, that they might not always understand where I was coming from or a reference that I would use. So that that was, uh, could be a challenge at time, but my editor kept me on track. So that's what I did then. So that column lasted for a number of years. Um, but during the course of that column, I did alienate both gay and straight people. <laughs> I alienated okay. gay activists. I used to get okay. threatening phone calls. I got really? one death, one uh, death threat. Wow. Um, I got an offer. I, I, it was just very bizarre. You know, Why? shoved in the street. Why? Uh, Why was this happening? Because because I wasn't towing the ideological party line. I mean, this is, this is when gay politics really became hardcore, ideological. There was always a thread there, even, uh, but especially in Philadelphia. I didn't notice it in Boston, but when I came to Philadelphia and joined the uh, gay groups, there was always this, uh, should gay men grow beards, for instance, or is this aping <laughs> straight patriarchal culture? Oh, interesting. So, so, so there, there was really a taboo of sorts against growing beards and all these sorts of weird stuff that you couldn't do or that you shouldn't do to be pure, to be okay. pure and remain true to the movement. So this always so bothered me. I mean, did you have a beard at the time? Well, I, I, could, I only grew a beard uh, when I lived in Boston, but even then it was spotty. It wasn't a really, really good beard. But when I see old pictures of it, I thought, that's not half bad. Yeah, yeah. Um, but at the time, I always see this little gap here or something. Well, okay. I said, yeah. it should be full, you know? Sure. I can't go around with a gap. 
So stuff like that. <laughs> you know, it's like I wanted a real beard. But um, I had, like, long hair and everything. I mean, I'm, I was a real, you know. I mean, I, I would come home and I had... Uh, uh, great aunts would like cry when they saw my beard. Oh no, you've become a hippie. And, I mean, oh, they would literally cry. That's amazing. Yeah. My and, grandmothers uh, give me crap every time about my beard. It must be a grandmotherly thing. Yeah. But I just looked at my great aunt and I said, it's okay. You, you know, it's just for the moment. I may shave it off in a month. Right. And so, anyway. Um, what was your question again, Jamie? Uh, so, so, I mean, am I going along the question? Yeah, no, this is great. Yeah. This is great, yeah. So, um, and then, of course, uh, my mother was always after me. She said, you write too much about gay issues. You need to expand your universe. You can't only write for a gay audience. Yeah. And I would tell her, but there are so many gay issues now. We're discriminated against. There's so much hatred. I said, I, I've like got to get this out of the way first. I've got to get it out of my system. And, but, you know, oddly enough, she was correct. Now that gay is like thoroughly mainstream, yeah. you know, you have, I mean, transgender children at four and five, so-called. Right. Which yeah. I think is like really deplorable. Yeah. Um, yeah. As you can see, I don't, I don't tow the um, ideological line. I've but that. <laughs> so I mean, once once that happened, I thought, well, I started to sort of not write so much about gay issues. Okay. But I wrote for PGN for a long time, had several columns, and then I I became known as like Mr. Gay Philadelphia, like all things gay, and it became problematic okay. for a while. Yeah. Um. So I started to branch out. So you had, you had to work and that took some time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. That took some time. But, but I started out as a general feature writer from high school. I mean, yeah. I never wrote about gay stuff yeah. in the beginning. Right. Um, but dealing with it in fiction was also a problem. My first book, uh, two novellas, Walking on Water. I, it took me seven years to get that published, and most of the objections were the confluence of religion, monasticism, and homosexuality. Mm. Secular publishers didn't understand that, and right. they objected to it. Yeah. That wouldn't mean a thing now. But the right. book w was rejected solely on that basis. Okay. So, <laughs> just as an example. You know, you've written, you've written several... Novels that are, that are considered gay fiction, right? Yeah, I've written uh, Spore. I've written Tropic of Libra, which is an adaptation of my journals. I've been okay. keeping diaries since the 70s, okay. and I still keep them. So I, I did a book on a section of the diaries during the AIDS crisis okay. around the 1980s. Yeah. And then I did... Uh, I did... Uh, gay and Lesbian Philadelphia. The uh, Cliffs of Aries, my first book, is not gay. And, um, you know, certainly um, my books now are not gay. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're just ordinary books. Right. I, I had a funny situation when I lived in Nashville. So we had just gotten signed, Royal Records had gotten signed, we were recording our album, 
We were both working at Starbucks as baristas. And we had a number of regulars that we liked. And there was this one guy, um, I don't remember his name, but he, he ran a bookstore. And he came in every single day to get a venti white chocolate mocha. <laughs> and I heard that he had a bookstore, and I'm a book nerd, so I'm talking to him one day over the bar. And I guess he was a little shy to say that it, he ran a gay bookstore. Yeah, he probably was. And, and so I was asking him, oh, what kind of books? Oh, we have all kinds of books. <laughs> and, and I kind of pressed the issue for him to let me know where the bookstore was. So he told me, and our album was about to come out. We are going to have a, a CD release party. So I was driving around, dropping off flyers at different places. So I thought, you know, I should go by his store. Uh, you know, he... I make him a coffee every single day. So I pull up and, you know, there was a rainbow flag out front, which is not unusual. No. But I don't know what the name of the store was, but I do remember thinking before I walked in, ah, this is probably a gay bookstore. Yeah, yeah. So I walked in, he was there, he did end up putting out the flyers for me, but there was this, like, really uncomfortable conversation that he and I had when I finally got there. And realized that it was a niche bookstore. Yeah. Um, so you know, I didn't bring it up anymore after that. Uh, but but it, but it was kind of a funny situation because you know it was clearly his business. He loves yeah. his business, but he wasn't marketing to me. So when I asked him about it, he didn't quite know how to discuss it. This was like 2002. Oh yeah. You know? Different so, time. Even yeah. even that was a different time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the culture has shifted. Radically in this regard, the culture has very ha, ha, has been uh, 500 uh, miles an hour of just just yeah yeah. 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 I, I think uh, you know if that whole scenario happened right now, like if I were a barista at Starbucks, it would be a different conversation. Yeah, yeah. he probably totally would have been straight up front about like hey, this is you yeah. know, I actually run the gay bookstore, mm-hmm. and nobody would think anything of that. Yeah, so it's amazing. F- Fifteen years was a, is a big deal in this uh, oh this no regard. no huge yeah so I'm but you know when I give uh, book readings one thing that I cannot do when I when I've read from my so-called gay novels sure. I go, I can I cannot read about sex I cannot I cannot oh, really? read about the uh, sexual act okay um, and I had to discover that myself what why so, is that I don't know okay. it just I don't think it makes for good literature. I don't think it makes for a yeah. good audience thing. It's yeah. just, uh, it just doesn't work. Yeah. Well, I, I certainly um, feel very uncomfortable with like the whole Fifty Shades phenomenon and all that yeah. stuff. And I, I, I think instinctively, I think I agree with you. Yeah. You know, it, it doesn't a, work. Maybe yeah. in a um, Henry Miller sense, where he'll, will he'll. Uh, touch on it, but not. He yeah. won't go into deep descriptions, a la sexual romance right. novel and stuff. Right. Um, so, as as we kind of round out the, the conversation, um, you know, in your work as a columnist or a journalist or however you would, how do you self-describe on in that regard? I consider myself a writer, author. Okay. Um. I don't like to use the word journalist, but I guess I am. But sure. Just sure. Well, I, w- I want to use the term that, that you prefer. So, so as an author, you've met a lot of um, 
you know, celebrities and different folks. And in fact, uh, one time I was back visiting Philadelphia and he invited me to a music-oriented event that was only open to the press. Um, so I assume you've, you've met a lot of musicians, you've met a lot of celebrities beyond mm -hmm. music as well. I wonder if you have anything to share about some of those experiences. Well, I, I, had, a, I had a great hours phone interview with the poet Allen Ginsberg okay. before his death. And we had a long talk about Nambla and about oh, his yeah. uh, vegetarianism okay. and, and so, some of the things that we were talking about. Yeah. And uh, he was very generous with his time. Um, I've interviewed uh, Maureen McGovern, you know, who was in the Superman movie. I interviewed mm -hmm. her in the lobby of the Bellevue Stratford. Uh, Mitzi Gaynor in Atlantic City. Joan Baez, uh, Lorna wow. Luft, the sister of Liza Minnelli. Wow, yeah. Um, uh, Bishop Sponge, the Episcopal really? Bishop and theologian. We had a sit down and How coffee years ago. It was very, 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 very nice. He's very gracious. Oh, I'm sure. Um, at, at the time, I liked him tremendously. Yeah. But then I. I heard that so many good Episcopalian people almost lost their faith after reading him. Yeah. I mean, he's got, he's got, he's really gone off the curve. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, and then um, I've uh, interviewed Frank Rizzo, uh, you know, probably people I'm not thinking of. When, when I was Anglo-Catholic, uh, I forget who it was, but there, there was a priest who told me a funny story where he had been given one of Spong's books and he mentioned it to his bishop and his bishop said to him you may read it once and then throw it away <laughs> I actually drew a little comic of that I, ha I used to have a little journal that I would draw comics in rather than mm -hmm. I would write quotes and comics and I drew a little comic of this scenario where he goes to the bishop to talk about Spong's book yeah. <laughs> that, that, that is so true but I liked Spong at the time because he was pro-gay. Sure, that sure. was the sure. that was the big selling point. I the rest of his of the rest of his theology was kind of suspect. Yeah. And so I completely understand that now. Yeah. I I would not read a book of his now. He was a very very pleasant man, very nice. Oh, I'm sure he is. Absolutely. Yeah, really really yeah, uh, wonderful interview. Theologically, he kind of sells the farm off. I know. Yeah, it just doesn't work. I, it's it's difficult for me to understand. Like I understand people leaving Christianity. Mm -hmm. Like people have lots of reasons they feel are very good for leaving Christianity. What I don't understand is when you essentially gut Christianity and stay a clergyman. And that's kind of my impression of, of what he's done. That's that's almost like you know uh, death from the inside. I mean which is probably the greatest evil of all. You know, you uh, tear it apart from the inside, which is what uh, Malachi Martin talks about in his books about the um, Roman Catholic Church. Okay. All right, well, as we uh, round things out here, are there any, um, is there a podcast or a book you've listened to or read recently that a non-religious audience might find beneficial? Well, this is called My Father the Devil, and I found it. It's about a uh, Philadelphia writer's memoir of his, like, father. Okay. 
they were both uh, physicians. But it's not really, there are parts of the book that really drag, but I am reading it only because he talks about famous people in Philadelphia history. His father knew these important people like uh, Dr. William White and uh, S. Ware Mitchell, who founded the uh, Franklin Inn Club, etc. Yeah. Joseph Liddy, who was a physician. And uh, so that's why, but, but it's a fascinating book yeah. for that reason. Sure. But, um, but I, I would say that the last book I read before that was a biography of the writer uh, Dominic Dunn. And, and which I found very, very fascinating. Nice. And, uh, but... What, what, what is it that jumped out to you about that book? Because his life was... He was a, a gay man in the closet who became very, very famous as a film producer and then, and then crossed the wrong people in Hollywood, was essentially shunned and had to keep reinventing himself. Okay. This is a real lesson in survival and constantly reimagining your life yeah. and coming back again and again and again with a new thing. And um, eventually um, being victorious in a sense okay. with all of his troubles. Yeah. So as an epic life story, right. this book I think spoke to me. That's really cool. Yeah. Where, where can people find your stuff? They can find my stuff at Philadelphia Magazine online. I do a weekly column for Philadelphia Magazine online. I write theater criticism for Icon Magazine. And oh, yeah. I write for the Huffington Post, so oh, yeah. I'm a regular HuffPost contributor. Okay. And they can buy my books at Barnes & Noble and on Amazon. Nice. And, and Tom yeah. is T-H-O-M. T-H-O-M-N-I-C-K-E-L-S. Very, very, last name is difficult to spell. Yeah. It's been butchered all my life. Sure. Even by editors who know me, they still butcher <laughs> it. It was just oh, uh, butchered three weeks ago. Oh. Yeah. That's terrible. I know it is. So, uh, my socials, and anybody listening to this probably already knows my socials, but um, I'm definitely right now mostly pushing Royal Ruckus, so I'm at Royal Ruckus, or at Royal Ruckus Official on... All the things, you just have to figure out which one it is, depending on which network. Um, you can find me at Jamie Bennett or at Just Jamie, also on other things. And Jamie is J-A-M-E-Y. Now, before we go, and I'm definitely putting you on the spot for this, so it's going to be fun to see uh, see where you go with this. Do you have a favorite rap song of all time? I am <laughs> notoriously... I, I mean, I always tell myself that I hate rap, that I like hate yeah. rap. And I just went to a big family wedding, okay. all right? It was my brother's youngest daughter, beautiful girl, married a handsome guy. Yeah. Big, gorgeous wedding with a rehearsal dinner, lasted three days. Okay, <laughs> great, great dancing up until a certain point. It's like a buzzer goes off and it becomes rap. How do you dance to rap? You don't dance to rap, you just wave your arms in the air you don't move your hips. Your body doesn't move. It's not dancing. It's not dancing. And I'm looking at the faces of these people, and I'm thinking, how do they experience joy in this music? There's no... That's so curmudgeonly. There's no alignment 
with bodily movements. It's all vertical. It's all up and down. It's all about raising your arms. I'm sorry, but you have to move your waist, your thighs, your butt. You've got to get the whole body in there. It really disturbed me, and my brother thought it was disgusting. He said, that's my son's Michael's doing. That's funny. Yeah, it was funny, though. I don't know. But I did dance to uh, two of those songs. All right. Do you have one of them? No, no. I don't don't like remember the name, but it was... um, But I had to remember to put my arms in the air, which is a completely unnatural act. <laughs> you, you don't stretch your arms up like the Empire State Building. I mean, it, it just doesn't. It just doesn't work. You know, I mean, it's just so we weird. Make it work. But I mean, they they apparently love it, but it's not. It doesn't. It's so counter intuitive. It's like counter harmony. It's counter everything. You know, I mean, maybe you should have grown up in the Bronx. Cause, maybe I should have. Because in, in the Bronx, that makes sense. And that's where rap came from. Well, God bless <laughs> the Bronx. I tell you, but, you know, I like dancing to ABBA. And, right. and, and to, like, 70s and, like, 80s things. And disco is still fabulous. I don't care. I mean... For, just- like, a dance floor, let me tell you. That's the test of a real dancer. Anybody can dance to rap. Even, this is why it's so popular, because bad yeah. dancers get away with bad <laughs> dancing. Well, That's the problem. You know, there, there was very early on sort of a war between disco and rap because ah, they were born in the, in the same... I yeah, mean, disco was cul-de-sac. There. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, exactly. yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. I, I, I can highly recommend um, the Netflix series. Um, oh, what's it called? It's terrible. It's the beer. Oh, the, the Get Down. That's what Oh, the it is. Get Down. Okay. The Get Down. So they've got two seasons out right now, I believe, and it's about the birth of rap music. Oh, yeah? And it's pretty factually true, but it yeah. is dramatized. And you see that like cross-contamination, so to speak, between disco and, and rap music. Interesting. And, uh, particularly as they were both competing for the same club. Interesting that I brought up disco. Then. Yeah, yeah. No, it's. I mean, it's very appropriate. So, do you, do you have? You don't have a favorite rap song for us? No, 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 no. <laughs> I don't. I don't even know the rap market. I know that you do rap. <laughs> and, but but you see, there's there's like rap and then there's rap. I think. Right. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like. Uh, Filene's Basement and Macy's and Nordstrom's, right? Yeah. All rap is not equal. It's not. No. So no. you have a lot of variations. Absolutely. And what I do is different than anything else that's out there. Um, even that's, I even know. where it overlaps mm-hmm. with certain segments, it's still different. The character yeah. is different. So. Well, since you don't have a favorite rap song, um, I think what I will do is I'll go ahead and close out on one of my... ADHD sort of fun topical changing all the time songs um, called Rhymer's Block hmm. um, this song this song makes a lot of intricate silly jokes most of which will go over everybody's head unless they study the lyrics um, I did I did put so out so there's homework involved there is homework involved but number one I have a music video for it so that helps a little bit it does. And then number two, on summerofthecicadas.com, 
which is the website we built for the album. I have all of the lyrics, and then I hyperlink certain things within the lyrics so that if somebody doesn't get a reference, they can click on it, and many of the references are supplied through links. So, Easy. Yeah. Easy. So it's sort of a That's dynamic nice. uh, way of exploring the album. So. Interesting. All right, well, thank you for listening to this episode of Brews, Beards, and Shipwrecks. I'm Jamie Vinnick, and I'm here with... Tom Nichols, and we have not really been shipwrecked. We survived this, <laughs> and the rain it. has really stopped. I'm, I'm still a little, little damp. Jamie, in my this shirt, has been fun. I'm still damp too. I'm still <laughs> wet at the small of my back. <laughs> right. Yeah. Have you ever been wet there? <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> Way to bring it full circle. Yeah. We did. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for listening, and here is Rhymer's Log. Hold her hand, but my beard just makes me nervous. From home to mom, that 
I found my special purpose, call me Jimmy the Jerk. I think I'm joining the circus. Scratch my surface. You should probably say you're sorry. Leave a tip for the DJ. It's his tunes that rock the party. Almost my MO. Yeah. To I would go to a bar and say, hmm, I've never slept with an Eskimo or an Ethiopian <laughs> or, a, oh, oh wow. you know, yeah. there's there's an Egyptian, you know, yeah. I need to put that down um, into my diary. So it was this Interesting. kind of a Pac-Man consumption of experience. <laughs> I love that description. <laughs> wow. And so how much can you take? How much can you consume? without an intelligent, mature processing right. before you break, yeah. you know, and how fast can you go? The drug culture at that time was really beginning to mushroom. Only then it was acid, okay. and everybody was trying to sort of get me to take acid. And these were not like street people without credentials or without right. great jobs. These were Harvard professors and published playwrights yeah. and, you know, people wow. with houses. But acid, acid was the big thing. Okay. I never took acid, by the way. I always said no. What, what kept you I from always doing said that, no. though? I mean, if your you whole thing was about collecting experiences, why not? You know, as wild as I was, with the acid thing, I got an intuitive stop sign as big as a house. And I knew that I could not go down that route. Okay. So I always said no to acid, but I smoked lots of grass. But everybody <laughs> smoked grass right, and right. hashish yeah. and, you know, yeah. whatever. So, I mean, that was... It became just a very, very ordinary thing at parties. Yeah. 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 